The Online Marketing Show with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money. Hello and welcome to the Online Marketing Show. This is Joey Bushnell. Today's special guest is a top marketer and he is the author of the book, Email Persuasion. His name is Ian Brody. Go to emailpersuasion.com to find out more. Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Great to be here. Ian, how did you get into marketing and how did you come to write the book, Email Persuasion? Gosh, by accident, to be honest. Um, the, I started off my kind of career, my business career, um, doing really techie stuff. I worked in IT and did a lot of kind of R&D stuff with big old mainframe computers. Um, and I did the usual stuff where you kind of, you get good at the technical side, you become a project manager, you manage a big team. And um, I wasn't actually very good at that. So my company sent me off to business school to study business. Um, and while I was there, I realized I wasn't really cut out for managing people, but actually I fell in love with marketing. And I decided that was the kind of thing I wanted to do. So I, I ended up switching jobs to become a consultant, focusing on marketing and business strategy, but for very large firms. So I'd work with, you know, some of the, um, over here in the UK, FTSE 100, for, you know, Fortune 500 over in the US and do big marketing and strategy projects with them. Did that for about, uh, over a decade. Um, and then, as part of that transition to doing marketing and selling of my own consulting services. So when I went solo about six or seven years ago, it seemed to make sense to put together the fact that uh, I'd done a lot of stuff in marketing and I'd learned how to do it for consultants and coaches. And that, that kind of became my field. And then email marketing really came out because I was having a lot of success with it. So mm-hmm. as you do when you I was teaching other, other consultants and coaches how to sell and how to market using a lot of traditional methods, face-to-face methods, but at the same time I was growing my business online and email was the real thing that was uh, that was paying off for me. So I'd reached a stage where although I was, wasn't really selling any online products, I was promoting my own services as a consultant, as, as a coach. About 70% of my clients were coming through email somehow. And of course, then those clients were beginning to say, well, how, this email thing seems to be working for you. Um, can you teach us how to do it? And the book itself grew out of that um, because I was having so much success. And I was finding, because I was specializing in doing email marketing for service businesses, so when you're selling really high-value products and services rather than selling, you know, Amazon type stuff or Groupon type stuff or even information marketing stuff. When you're selling that really high, higher ticket item, the sort of email marketing I was doing was working really well and was a little bit different. So let's dive a little bit deeper in. You said that email was basically the most successful thing that you were doing. Why else do you love it? What is it about email that makes it so successful? Well, I think there's uh I guess there's, there's, there's three things that I like about email. The first is obviously that it works. Um, and you can look at a lot of the research. Occasionally, you know, of course, there's a whole bunch of buzz about all sorts of different and new and exciting different um, types of marketing. And, of course, people with products to sell always want to sell you the latest new thing because you've, you know, new equals I can sell it to you because you don't know it. But the truth is that whenever it's studied, email marketing, I think the last study by was by Costora who studied Lord knows how many millions of customers over five years and checked where their online purchases came from. And 40 times as many purchases came from email as from social media, for example. So it just does work. And I think it works because 
it is a more intimate type of communication than social media or really anything really anything else you can do. I, I make the effort to try and read everything in my inbox. Spam filtering is pretty good these days. I don't really get a lot of spam. I get a lot of e- newsletters I've subscribed to that I maybe scan, but I try and read everything that's coming into my inbox. Whereas with social media, I don't care if I see all the Facebook posts. I don't care if I see all the Twitter stuff. I dip in and out of it as it's happening. So as a communication style, it kind of works and the data say, says it works. I think one of the best ways of looking at it is if you go to the website of any of these social media experts, and I'm not having a go at social media because I use social media in conjunction with email, mm-hmm. but if you went, for, you know, who knows a lot about Facebook? It's, it's people like Mary Smith and Amy Porterfield. If you go to their websites, the biggest amount of real estate on their website is taken up by them trying to get you, the, you described, subscribe to their emails, not to connect with them on Facebook. If you go to Lewis Howes, the kind of LinkedIn, LinkedIn influence guy, or the LinkedIn expert, mm-hmm. what he tries to get you to do on his homepage is subscribe to emails, not to connect with him on, on LinkedIn. Um, I think it's Melanie Duncan does Pinterest. What does she get you to do? Subscribe to her emails, not to go and hook up with her on Pinterest. So all these social media gurus know that the, the, the you know, the big money for them is, is actually in getting people to subscribe subscribe to the email. So it works. I find it easier. I'm not the sort of person who really enjoys going out and meeting people and shaking hands and all that kind of schmoozing type stuff. It just doesn't do it for me. I don't really enjoy it. Um, but I find out I, I'm quite happy to sit and write an email and I can do that and I can do it when it fits in with my lifestyle and I can pre-program it to go out. And of course, email is scalable as well. So whereas with social media, you could do the same kind of, you know, go and type something like, um, like I'm saying with email if, if you're not really a, a kind of face-to-face meeting people person. But what you can't do is get that thing to go out to, uh, to you know, to 10,000 people on your email list or uh, or to automate it so that when people first follow you on, on social media, they get a certain number of things for you. It just doesn't work that way. It's all kind of real time and you've got to be there with social media, whereas, whereas with email, you can kind of scale it and you can set it and forget it if you want. So all that kind of added together means it's, it's, it's a method that I like. It's funny, isn't it? Because one of the best uses of social media for marketing is to get people to sign up to your, your email list. So social media feeds into email in a way. That's right. I mean, that's what all the, you know, the, 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 the Mary Smiths and Amy Porterfields will, and Lewis Howes will tell you is that you, as well as what you're doing on the, on, on their particular social media of interest, you ought to be getting people to sign up to your email list because in a way that, that's more permanent. It's a more personal interaction. And you can see it in, uh, you probably have the same, but whenever I do webinars, for example, of course, I'll promote the webinar on social media. Um, I'll have it on my blog. I'll, promote it to my email list and you know 80 90 percent of the people who, who come into the webinar are going to be coming from my email list or the email list of someone else who's promoted it from me it just works so the big question then ian is how do we build a list some of those listening to this maybe don't have a list at all or maybe they have a list but it's quite small and they'd like it to be bigger which means they don't have enough people reading their emails so how do we do that how do we grow our list well, I think they're just, it's a kind of, there's a well-known formula, I think, that, that most people are, are aware of for, uh, for building a list. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's traffic times conversions. If you think of, am I going to get a subscriber? It's kind of the number of people who come to your website. If we rule out for a minute the fact that you can get people to subscribe to your, to your emails, you know, if you meet them face to face and stuff like that, that tends to be quite small scale. Um, the, the main amount is going to come from people coming to your website. So traffic, website visitors, multiplied by the percentage of them that then, uh, you know, decide to opt in. And you've got to work at both sides of that equation. You know, traffic, you've got to get, and it's, the key thing is it's got to be the right sort of traffic. 
Um, you know, you could get a lot of traffic if you uh, offered money for free on your website, but it probably wouldn't be the sort of people you'd want subscribing or who were ever likely to buy anything from you um, if you if you did that. You know, similarly, you know, if you got a number one in Google for for funny jokes. Great, but again, it's not the right sort of traffic for people who are going to buy your services. So you, mm-hmm. you, you know, and traffic. This isn't really a kind of traffic interview, but my my own preferred traffic sources are are through joint webinars, guest blog, guest blogging, and do not be afraid of paid traffic. I think is my the big thing I've personally learned over the past number of years is a whole load of people are frightened of paid traffic because it's money. But if you can get a candle on the value of a subscriber to you, the lifetime value of a customer and how much each subscriber is worth based on you know, what they're likely to turn into as a, as a customer, you can be very confident in using paid traffic to come to your website, to your opt-in page, your landing pages, knowing your conversion rates and knowing how much you can afford to pay and still be very profitable. And I would always look at that as one of the key routes because you can switch it on and off. You can target it very accurately. And you know, and again, as your business grows, it's something that you can spend money on doing rather than having to spend your personal time, which, of course, you've only got 24 hours in the day of. Well, this leads nicely on to my next question, which is uh, about something that you wrote about in your book, Email Persuasion. It's a formula that you call the opt-in formula. Um, and I thought that this was great because you basically summarize if someone is faced with that decision, if they're at your landing page and they can see your opt-in form, they then have to decide whether to either fill it out or to click the X at the top of their browser and, and leave forever. So the opt-in formula helps us to work out in detail how we can increase our opt-in rate. So could you let us know a little bit about that, please? Absolutely, yeah, and I claim no great originality for this. You know, the very or lots of different people have versions of, of formulas for what's going to make people opt in. But I think what what I try to do is just simplify it down to the main essence. And really, there are there are two big factors that are going to you know encourage people to subscribe and motivate them to subscribe. And there are two big factors that are going to put them off. And the two that are going to motivate them to subscribe um, are the the long term value they perceive in your emails and a, a short term incentive. And the two that are going to put them off. So that it's you know. The top two multiply together, divided by the bottom two, and the bottom two are friction and perceived risk. So if we jump into each of those, the long-term value people are going to see um, from your emails is basically if they just think, if I subscribe to this email, what would I get from it in the long term? And if you're someone famous in your field, so I've been a consultant for longer than I can remember, 20 years or so, um, and I've always loved people like Tom, Tom Peters, Michael Porter, etc., big names in the consulting field. And so if I got the chance to subscribe to their emails and they just said, hey, I'm writing an email every day, would you like, a, would you, would you like one? I would jump. It didn't matter what else. They didn't have to have any fancy opt-in form or anything. You know, I would crawl over broken glass to subscribe to that email. Most of us, however, aren't, uh, you know, fortunate enough to be in that position of being world famous in our particular field and having people desperate to subscribe. So we've got to do a little bit more. So the first simple thing is a lot of people just have an, an opt-in box or a form that says subscribe to my newsletter or, you know, get my e-zine. But, of course, there's no implied value from the word newsletter or the word e-zine. You know, what, in fact, newsletter sounds awful. It sounds like you're going to get, you know, details of what Marjorie and Accounts is doing this week <laughs> or whatever. You know, nobody wants to know your news. People want to know something valuable and useful to them. So always try and name your newsletter or, or regular emails so that they tell people what they're going to get from them. So, you know, I call mine client winning tips. It's fairly simple, but if you want to win clients, then client winning tips sounds like it's something you might want. Um, other people might have divorce survival nuggets, if that's what you write about, or, you know, cost reduction strategies or whatever it might be. So give it a name that sounds like people might want to get it. 
Um, if you've got other great stuff on your website, like really great blog posts and all that, all that other stuff, or you can have some testimonials that tell people, um, Laura Betterly, I think the social media, um, consultant has a really great thing on the front of her website, the way she's basically just got a couple of quotes from people saying, you know, yours are the only emails I read. So that's telling people through the use of third party endorsement, these emails are worth reading. So that increases the perceived long term value of the emails. Um, Short-term incentive, of course, long-term is great and we all want something wonderful, but we, we want it now as well. We want it now. And so the short-term incentive is something you can give away to people that will get them, give them some immediate value and encourage them to subscribe. So traditionally, of course, this has been what many people call a lead magnet, um, which is a free report or a free video, a free little, you know, short email series, uh, a free DVD they might get through the post or a, you know, a little bit of software or whatever, but something they get immediate value from. Um, that satisfies that kind of craving for instant gratification. Now, of course, it's got to be value in the area your long-term emails are going to give them value in. There's no point in giving them something really great, you know, if you t- about saving some money on their telephone bill if long-term you're going to talk to them about winning clients. You know, that, that you're getting the wrong people. The incentive needs to attract the right sort of people. But usually that that, that instant punch of value that solves an immediate problem or an ambition or a goal that they have, that's going to kind of push them over the edge to subscribing. Now, the two kind of negative factors, and one is friction, and friction is just the stuff that slows people down. So if you've got too many fields to fill in on your initial form, so if you know you ask for name, email address, telephone number, job title, inside leg measurement, all that sort of stuff, if you had a bazillion visitors to your website and you had subscribers coming out of your ears, then you can afford to narrow them down and qualify them by asking for more information. So only the very best and the most um, committed actually sign up. But for most of us, we're not that lucky. We're better off capturing the minimum information initially, um, email address and maybe the name, to get people onto the list and maybe asking them for that other information later. Um, so the more the more you ask for, the, the more likely people are not to fill in the form because it's too much work. And if you ask for stuff like you know job title and phone number, it feels like some salesperson's going to phone them, so that's going to put them off as well. A lot of people I've seen in businesses ask for job title and phone number. They never use it. It is, you know, it never gets used. Nobody ever phones, but they scare people off because they because they put it on. Um, or if you know, if the form's not visible, I've seen uh, there's a law firm firm close to me that is a really great firm. Their subscribe to our newsletter box is about three scrolls down at the bottom of the page, hidden on the right. It's almost like they're embarrassed of their newsletter and they don't want you to sign up. They've hidden it so well. So obviously, you want you want the form to be visible. Um, you want to be visible. In, a, in more than one place, so typically, you know, right-hand side next to a blog post, very prominent on the home page. Why not on your About Me page? It's usually the second most visited page on your website. So why not, instead of making your About Me page all narcissistic and about how, how great you are, make it about the value that people will get from you and your website. And, of course, the best way of them getting value is to subscribe to your emails. Um, make it show whenever you take an action, like scrolling to the bottom of a blog post or showing it in there. All sorts of stuff like that. You can think of lots of different places to put um, opt-in forms. It's going to reduce the friction because it makes it easier for people just to find it. And then the final one is is just uh, perceived risk. And if your website looks like it's scammy, it looks like if it looks like by subscribing they're going to hit get hit by a whole bunch of spam, then it's probably going to put them off. And this is very dependent on your audience. Mm-hmm. So you know if you if you're trying to appeal to video gamers. They expect the screen to be black and full of, you know, pictures of, of women with big swords and stuff like that. <laughs> and that's in keeping with what they're expecting. If you're a survivalist, 
you expect a kind of hand-cranked website that looks very scruffy and anti-establishment. Um, but if you're a business professional, you don't expect a, a website that looks like, you know, 13-year-old child did it with big red warning, you know, stop now and stop signs and stuff. That kind of thing works for some of the internet marketing crowd. Um, and, and it kind of grabs my attention. Um, and I'm kind of used to those sort of things. But to a more conservative business person, that can often put them off. So don't take it for granted that the, the, the best practice opt-in templates that you see working in one niche are going to work in no, your niche. You must test them because your audience is different. And there is a risk that some of the things you see might put people off by looking a bit risky. Brilliant. Ian, thank you so much for, for going into so much detail and, and giving us some really practical tips there on, on how to increase our, our opt-ins. So we've built a list now. We're, we've got a nice amount of subscribers on our list and we're happy with it. So we're now we're, we're sending out emails. How do we make sure that our emails are opened and actually get read? Well, I think the first thing about them being opened is is your own reputation. So if you have delivered great value with your initial incentive, your lead magnet. If they read that or they watched that video and it was excellent and it immediately helped them in their business or their life, then they're much more likely to read your initial emails as they come in. And if those initial emails are also excellent and give them great value, you've kind of almost got someone for life there. It doesn't matter what you put in the subject line, they're going to open it because you've just built this reputation with them of sending them brilliant stuff they can use. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is, you know, keep the quality level really high, especially early on. Um, the second thing, of course, is the subject line. Um, and what, you know, what's in the subject line is going to interest people. Um, there are all sorts of, you know, unusual subject lines that, that have worked in the past. You know, um, the Obama campaign did really well fundraising with emails uh, a few years ago, and they use subject lines like "Hey," um, you know, get an email, I guess, saying "Hey" from Barack Obama. It's probably going to spark you to open it. But um, and of course, lots of internet marketers then used the exact same "Hey" thing, and it became overused, and people kind of said, "Oh God, it's another one of those." Um, the, the kind of safest, the try, the tried and true formula is something I. I got from uh, copywriter Gary Bensavenga uh, many years ago, which is that, uh, and he did it for headlines in adverts, but it works just as well for subject lines, and it's that interest is equal to benefits times curiosity. So you're going to open an email if there's a promise of some benefit in there, you'll get something useful from it, but also if it invokes your curiosity. So, you know, I subscribe to a whole load of emails. I'm quite, inter I'm obviously interested in marketing, in creating products and stuff like that. Um, I remember uh, re recently I got an email that said something like, you know, um, product creation tips or something like that. And so there's a benefit in there because I want to, I, you know, I want to get better and better at making products. But to be honest, I've read a hundred emails that promise product creation tips. I probably think I'm going to, I've already read most of those tips. There was no element of curiosity in there. Um, however, on the same day, I got an email, I think from Kim Roach, which basically said something like, in square brackets, my private Rolodex, um, 13 tools for spying on your competitors. So everyone probably wants to be able to spy on their, on their competitors. But because Kim said 13 tools for spying on your competitors, I don't know about you, but I don't know 13 tools for spying on my competitors. So immediately using the number aroused my curiosity. What are those 13 tools? I bet you I don't know them. So I went and opened that. And the kind of my private Rolodex thing was quite, quite curiosity invoking as well. So think about the benefit people would get and think about um, how you can invoke their curiosity by saying something unusual. I mean, of course, the staple you'll see time and time again is a certain number of ways of, of giving you, of getting a certain benefit. So, you know, five, uh, my lead magnet's called five simple, um, 
tweaks, five simple marketing tweaks that'll get you more clients because now you've got the, 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 the benefit there of some simple things you can do to get more clients, but you've got the curiosity of, I wonder what those five things are. It's a bit like, you know, you've probably seen those TV shows, you know, the top 100 sitcoms of the 1980s or whatever. And despite the, the, it all being awful, and the same talking heads speaking over that, but we always stay and watch to the end, don't we? Because we want to see what number one is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the same thing with the kind of list. Don't overdo it. Don't use lists all the time, but have something in there that talks about the benefit and something in there that invokes their curiosity, and that'll usually work. So sticking with this theme of getting our emails read, you, you talk in the book about three steps to engagement. Could you tell us how to do that, how to write an engaging email? Okay, so so once people have opened it and they're beginning to look into it, there's a, there's an element of formatting in there as well um, that's about getting them to read it. If if people open your email and bearing in mind that you know it depends on the estimate, but you know let's say about forty percent of people are reading emails on their mobile devices right now. If your email is just dense text for uh, you know and it fills their whole screen, they're going they're not going to read it. Or if your email is so full of fancy images that it makes them think it reminds them of an email from Amazon. It's going to put them off and think they're, they're being sold something. And often the fancy images will break a mobile anyway. Um, so what you want is a nice, simple-looking email with lots of white space that looks easy to read. That's the first thing to get it read. Mm-hmm. If you then want to engage people, I think there's a few things in there. Um, the first thing is, I, I think, and what especially if you're an individual or a small business rather than a, a mega corporation, is make your emails personal. Make them from a personality you usually, um, you know, someone with a bit of character, some, someone with something about them who has a particular point of view, who's not afraid to talk about certain subjects. People are more interested in engaging with human beings. Um, I think if you think back even a long, long time ago, I sometimes use an example of, um, of Roosevelt during the war where he used to do these fireside chat um, radio broadcast to the American public to essentially give them confidence during the war. Um, no, actually, it wasn't the war at all. I think it was coming. What am I talking about? It was coming out of the coming out of the the Great Depression, the crash. Don't know why I said war there, but coming out of the uh, out of the crash, he, he did fireside chat radio radio shows where he essentially talked person to person with them mm-hmm. um, on the radio, and he really spoke to every man, to the average man in the street, just talking in normal language. And the people understood, and it was coming from him personally. So I think establishing your personality um, is something that uh, pretty much all of us can do, and it helps to differentiate us from the uh, you know from from the other people that might be uh, you know might be emailing them the, from larger corporations and, and stuff like that. And I think the second thing that's related to that is that you need to go beyond just regurgitating facts and figures and tips. I think a lot of people in my field, which is consultants and coaches and people like that, have a lot of great information to share with people, but they don't go beyond that. They just give information. And, you know, if, if, if we just wanted information, we could scour the web. You know, Google works for that. If we just wanted information, we could read a dictionary or Wikipedia or an encyclopedia. Or, uh, we, we, we often need something more. And if you think about what we voluntarily give our attention to day in, day out, it's stuff like soap operas. It's stu- you know, it's stuff like CSI that my wife loves, or or Fringe, or whatever the latest kind of crime or sci-fi drama is. That's what we, you know, we're obsessed by. Whenever the latest um, Elementary or Sherlock Holmes type thing comes on, my wife and I are sitting there in front of it with a little drink in hand, and, and we tune in week in week out. And many people tune in day in day out to to certain radio shows where there is personality. There are characters, there's story, there's something interesting and unusual going on all the time. So when you're thinking of writing your emails, 
Absolutely, you need to be giving value in those emails, otherwise people are going to start tuning out. But you also need to be doing it in a way that's a little bit entertaining. So, you know, if you're writing about a, if you're giving people a tip about something, something valuable, then, you know, wrap the tip in a story about how you discovered it. And I found that when I tell stories about my terrible failures when I was first starting marketing, people love that. <laughs> people love to hear about failures and problems you had, and they get really engrossed in the story. Or, if you kind of link a good piece of marketing to what's happening in the news or what's happening on TV in a famous TV series or or what's happening, um, you can go the complete opposite direction to TV series and look to classical literature or whatever. But just put a bit of a twist on it. Don't just make it dry, boring information all the time, um, but, but but do something to, to, to make it more interesting. And then I guess the final thing is, is you've got to get people to take action. There is a danger when you are sending regular emails to people that people get into this mode of they'll open your email, oh, this is good stuff, they'll read it, they'll go, mm, yeah, very interesting, and then they'll close it and they'll move on to their next email. And they get it almost into like passive, into, into being a passive consumer of that information. And that means that when later on you do ask them to do something like, you know, to buy from you, they're just not used to taking action whenever they, whenever, whenever they um, get emails from you. They're just used to reading it and moving on. What you want to get them used to doing early on is properly engaging. It's a bit like, um, I guess, going on a date. If you, if you see, uh, I'm going to talk from a boy's perspective here, but if you, if you, if you're a teenage boy and you see a girl that you like and maybe you want to invite her out on a date and you, you kind of, you decide you're going to send her some flowers or you can tell how old I am. This <laughs> you, you maybe send her some flowers or a box of chocolates or whatever. If you keep sending her gifts, and she never does anything for you, like sending you, you're giving you a gift or a card or going out on the day. That's not really a relationship. That's stalking. Um, <laughs> and you kind of, you got that with your emails as well. You don't just want to be sending people this great stuff. You want them to be taking action as well. So early on, for example, you might just want them to hit reply and say they've got something from you or tell you something about themselves or tell you about one of their big problems or click a link and go and fill in a survey for you or click a link and go and like a post on, uh, on your book. Blog. So what you're doing is you're kind of, in the one sense, you're conditioning them to take action when they get emails from you. But really what you're doing, the way I like to see it, is you're just building a proper two-way relationship. You know, real relationships in the real world that, that mean something are never just one way. They're always a mutual exchange, and it's not just people reading your stuff. It's people actually talking back to you. It's one of the reasons, um, if you think of our pop stars and film stars these days, the ones that are very successful – um, these days, they interact with a lot with their fans on social media, mm-hmm. and it's that two way engagement. You know, you feel closer to someone if you're interacting with them, rather than if you just, you know, the olden days of buying their records, and maybe if you got lucky, you'd see them, you'd scream as they landed on, on an airport or something like that. These days, people kind of expect to engage uh, and interact rather than just passively receive, and that works better when later on you're trying to get something to happen. Let's talk a little bit deeper about a certain type of call to action, and that is to buy something. How do we turn someone from a reader into a buyer? Well, my experience, and and remember, my experience is largely to do with kind of high-value products and services. So my experience is that, um, firstly, I think we may talk about this later. Firstly, you have to recognize that people will be at different stages of readiness to buy when they join your list and at any given point when you're emailing them. So typically, I find that, 
of the people who might join my email list or other people's email list, you've got a small group who have joined that email list because they're ready to do something and take action right now and they want you know, to buy a product or get a solution. So you kind of want to be giving them a chance to buy as soon as possible because they're ready to roll. But m- the majority of people aren't ready right now. You know, they're, they're kind of, you know, in the case of um, coaching services, for example, you know, I help people get more clients in, in whatever consulting business they've got. So they may be in the early stages of looking for help. They may be thinking, you know, I, I need to know how to get more clients, but I don't know whether I should be doing it online or offline. I don't know whether email is going to work. So the reason they're subscribing to my emails is to get useful information. They're not ready to buy yet or hire a coach yet. And before they're going to be ready to buy or hire a coach, a couple of things need to happen. One is the time has to be right, so they're really feeling the urgency mm-hmm. um, and they feel they need to do something. Secondly, they need to, to trust me because coaching is quite an intimate relationship. And thirdly, I need to have credibility. They need to believe I can de- you know, do what I say I can do and actually deliver the goods and help them get, um, get more clients. So that, that usually doesn't happen over time. Yeah, that, sorry, it doesn't usually happen instantly. It happens over time. So what you have to do is you have to think through, for my specific type of ideal client, what do they need to know and feel to be ready to hire me? You know, in my case, I just said there, they probably need to know that I've worked with people like them, so consultants and coaches, and got great results for them. They probably need to know that they don't have to become a marketing genius overnight, that they could fit it into their schedule as a consultant, you know, in kind of half a day, one day a week, rather than it taking five days a week and them having to become, a, as I say, a marketing genius. They probably need to know this is not some terrible scam where I'm going to take their money and uh, and run off. It's like like a, a number of kind of internet things. Um, and there's a whole bunch of those factors that they would need to feel um, or know before they'd be ready to buy. And what I need to do in my regular emails is I need to get those know and feel factors over to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and a good way of doing that is going back to this, this thing about the use of stories. So as I said before, um, I tell quite a lot of stories uh, in my emails about the, the failures I've had, but I've learned from those and I've got better. So people are getting the impression that's a topic Ian knows about and he's got good results with. I'll often tell stories about my clients. And so rather than, for example, doing, you know, a, an email that says five tip, five LinkedIn tips to help you get more business, I'll t- that story, instead of just being a list of five tips, will be a story about one of my clients, the five things I helped him implement in his business um, to get better at LinkedIn and the results he got. And that way I've, I've given people the tips in the email. The five tips are still there, but because I've wrapped it up in a story about one of my clients, um, and of course, I'll pick a client I've worked with that's, t- that's typical of my usual client base that I'm going after. They get the feeling, the kind of subconscious feeling, oh, he works with people like me. Oh, and he worked with them and they got really good results quite quickly. I wonder if I might get some good results from working with him. So you are using, you're using the, the problems and the challenges and the things they're interested in for the topics of the emails but you're illustrating them with stories or examples that prove those known feel factors they, they would need to see to be ready to hire you. So you feed those in over time, um, and that builds your level of trust, your level of credibility. It builds the relationship. It also shows them what's possible and shows them the results they can get so they feel the need to take action more. And then, of course, you've got to have calls to action. And I, again, that's something that where, especially in the coaching and consulting field, where none of us likes to be too salesy, often um, we fall down in terms of having calls to action in our email. We feel as if we just, we, we, I keep hearing this thing about, um, which I personally think is a bit of a myth, that what you need to do is, you know, give value, give value, give value, pitch. And for me, that's just weird because mm-hmm. firstly, you, you don't know when people are ready. And secondly, 
if you send someone a pitch, it's still a pitch. It doesn't matter whether your, your previous three emails were giving value. You know, a pitch email still reads badly. So what I found is it's best to embed any pictures, any sales messages, almost in every email. There's no reason why you can't sell in every email as long as you do it right, as long as you give them some value in that email and then give them the logical next step. So uh, let's say I was talking about that five tips on LinkedIn, five LinkedIn tips that will help you get more clients. The, you know, the, there's a story of the guy who got, got better, you know, great value. And at the end of it, I'll just say something like, you know, if you'd like to get those same results for your business, give me a call on this number or whatever. These days I don't do coaching one-to-one anymore. It's kind of more online products. But that was what I would do is I would li- I, I'd link the, um, the content of the email to the logical next step they should take to get the same results, which would usually be setting up a call with me where we could talk about working together. So um, don't be afraid of including a call to action that is the logical next step. And for some people, that might be going to a sales page and buying a product. But usually for high-value products and services, it's to set up a call with you or something like that, or to come along to a webinar where you're promoting that higher-value product or service. Ian, you talk in the book about list segmentation. How can we use list segmentation to really target and tailor our emails to the right people? It's a really good question. This is really an emerging field. Um, there are... One of the challenges, I think, and it just comes back to that, that one of the, well, one of the things it shows up in is that thing I just said before about, you know, not wanting to pitch too much in, in emails. The truth is what a lot of people end up doing is if you, if you remember that mo- people on your email list are going to be at different stages of readiness to buy and they're going to have different interest level in, levels in different products. So, um, if you try and average it out, and do a kind of, you know, a one pitch every three emails sort of thing. The trouble is that's one pitch too many for the people not interested in that product. Mm-hmm. And it's not enough pitches for the people who are really interested in it. Mm-hmm. So you end up stuck between the two. Now, ideally, what you would like to do is to know who's actually interested in a product. And therefore, you can have more um, sales-focused emails to them because they're glad to see them because they're interested in the product and not send so many emails or sales-focused emails to the people who aren't interested because, you know, they're not. And and that's where list segmentation comes in. So, you know, you can't obviously can't read the mind of the person who's uh, subscribed to your emails. But what you can do, for example, is something simple. So let's say, uh, going back to that LinkedIn example, uh, I ought to say I don't have a LinkedIn product, but if I did have a LinkedIn product, um, what I could do is I could send out an email to my whole list that said, you know, that gave them a tip on LinkedIn. So my number one tip on LinkedIn, or, you know, um, I think I sent an email a while ago saying the real secrets of LinkedIn, which, you know, the real secrets, curiosity, um, lots of people opened it. And I would give out, you know, one or two really solid tips on LinkedIn. And then at the bottom, I would say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm working on producing a, a you know, product, um, a training product on, on LinkedIn strategies. Uh, if you want more tips in this area, click here. And what I would then do is take them to either to, depending on the email system you're using, if you're using a basic email system, you know, an Aweber or a MailChimp get response, not get response actually, Aweber or Mail, MailChimp, you have to get them to opt into a new list. So you'd send them to a landing page, they would then subscribe to get more tips specifically about LinkedIn. Um, with get response or with Infusionsoft and Entreport, just clicking the link can put them onto that list. Or with Aweber, you can use AW Pro Tools, which is a little tool that lets you do that from Jack Bourne. Um, and, and then what you've done is you've, you've segmented your list. You now know who is interested in LinkedIn and who wants to hear more about LinkedIn. So you can send them more emails about LinkedIn and more tips there. 
um, hopefully ones you pre-recorded and they just go out on an autoresponder. Um, they'll get, those people will get great value from those LinkedIn tips. Whereas, of course, the people on your general list who didn't click that link would have got bored by having five tips in a row on LinkedIn because it wasn't a subject they were interested in. And just as importantly, you can also, because you've got people who are interested in LinkedIn, you can mention your product about LinkedIn rather more frequently to those folks than you would want to to your main list because they, you know, they're, they're not interested. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm never afraid to offer my services or offer something to people. Um, but I wouldn't want to be continually pitching a product when I know someone is absolutely not interested in it. You know, there's a, sometimes people will say, look, you should be pitching all the time. Um, because if people don't want your product, you know, that if they don't agree with that, they, they were never going to be a customer. They can unsubscribe. You don't want them on that list anyway. And that's true if all you're selling is one thing. But if you have multiple products, mm-hmm. then there is a danger that if you repeatedly focus on one of those products over a period of time to an email list, the people who don't want that product but who would be very interested in your other products, they'll get bored and unsubscribe because of that one product. So you either have to vary it round um, or better, segment off so you know who's interested in what products, um, as we've just described, and then you can send more about the things they're interested in to the right people. And that way you can be sending more emails because we know that more emails tends to get better results, more emails to the ones who are interested and less emails to the ones who aren't interested. So how exactly do we do this? I know that in the book you say that there are three different types of email marketing system. What type of email marketing system would we need if we wanted to go quite advanced with list segmentation? Okay, for list segmentation, the basic systems, many people will know the things like Aweber and MailChimp and iContact, Constant Contact, usual functionality, people can sign up, it manages the list, you can send broadcasts, you can send autoresponders. If you want to do list segmentation with those sort of systems, then to get onto a separate list, people have to re-opt in. They have to you know, put their details back in again and get on the, sec- the second list. Um, the typically, there's one exception, but typically the the next level up, which has more advanced facilities, are I, I, I kind of call them integrated systems. So it's Infusionsoft and Entreport, which used to be called Office Autopilot, and they have two different two extra things over the basic systems. They're a lot more expensive. So a basic system might be ten fifteen dollars a month. You know, Infusionsoft Entreport are two hundred three hundred dollars a month, and a, and a couple of thousand for Infusionsoft to start up. But they have other features like they have built-in shopping carts. The, you know, some direct mail and, and, uh, or voice, voicemail integration. They have kind of bits of CRM built in and all that sort of stuff, membership sites, etc. So depending on which one it is, they have extra features. But what they also have is more advanced ways of handling email. So they have, rather than having one list, people just go into the database and you can attach them to tags, put them on different sequences, um, depending on what their behavior is. So you can change what's going to happen for them and what emails they get just on based on what links they click, on what web pages they visit, um, whether they open an email or not, if you can detect that. So you can do more advanced list segmentation with those systems. Um, there's another higher level system, the, the kind of really big expensive ones like HubSpot, Eloqua, Marquito, Silverpop, which are probably out of the range of most businesses other than the very large ones. And again, they have more advanced features. They actually have less of the integrated stuff of the shopping carts and CRM because usually for a large business that's buying them, they're integrated with things like salesforce.com and those systems because a large corporate's already going to have its own CRM system. It's already going to have its own e-commerce system. So the bigger, the top-end email systems are all about integrating with the, the, the other big systems rather than having everything themselves. The one exception or the couple of exceptions to the rule are get response, 
is an entry-level email system that focuses on email, but it also has some of that more advanced rule-based um, stuff. So with GetResponse, if someone clicks on a link or visits a web page, you can put them onto a new order responder sequence automatically. Um, it's not doesn't have the kind of advanced tagging that Infusionsoft and Office Autopilot on Report have, but you can put people onto new sequences based on what they click or what which web pages they visit. And similarly for Aweber, there's an extra an add-on tool you can buy um, for called AW Pro Tools, and that will let you do a, do similar things, add people to extra lists based on what they're clicking and, and what they're doing. Great. Well, Ian, thank you so much for all this fantastic information that you've, that you've given us today. Um, you've gone really detailed on some of the things that you've, uh, that you've written about in your book, but I know that there's a lot more to learn about this subject. So where can we go to buy your book? If we really want to get great at making money with email, where can we find out more about you? And also where can we go to buy your book? Well, there are a couple of different things. Obviously, the book's on Amazon. If you just search for email marketing, it'll be there as number one on Amazon. Uh, but you can go, if you want to get some free stuff, I've got a website called emailpersuasion.com. If you register there, you can get access to a bunch of free videos and training on email marketing. It's got my technology guide with some of the stuff we talked about there. And some of the stuff we've been talking about, about writing emails, getting people on your email list, um, all covered in video there. And if you buy the book, um, on Amazon, there's a special link where you can register and get even more um, resources on that website. If you just want to come along and see me generally and get get more of my stuff, just go to www.ianbrodie.com. That's I-A-N-B-R-O-D-I-E.com. Great. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And if you enjoyed this episode, please show your appreciation by leaving a review on iTunes. And Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Fantastic. It's been a real pleasure. The Online Marketing Show with Joseph Bushnell, helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money.